0: All right, why don't you introduce yourself briefly?
1: All right, so I'm Christopher Luciano. I work for IBM under the Digital Business Group, uh, which is primarily concerned with developer advocacy type of things. And then the subsection of the group that I work under is involved in being an upstream contributor to projects that IBM has taken an interest in, uh, whether they have a specific project that builds on top of it, or they're just generally interested in the community. Um, the things that I've worked on specifically are Kubernetes, mostly on the networking side, but I've also dabbled in the GPU side. Mm, GPU. And the, most recently, due to my... Oh, it's all about the GPUs. If you're not <laughs> doing machine learning, you're not even programming anymore, I heard.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: The other thing that I mostly work on now is uh, Istio, Uh which by extension leads into Envoy. Envoy being a cloud native computing foundation project, but Istio trying to make its way there. And before I did that, I did a lot of build engineering in the Microsoft space, as well as some professional services stuff also, like in the
0: Windows large healthcare space. Windows is very popular in hospitals, from what I can tell. It seems to... uh... I mean, there's a lot of clients in the hospital, so to speak. Uh, By by that, I mean desktops or laptops or whatever. And so I guess it makes sense that you would see a lot of windows. A lot of client server seems like there.
1: For sure. Yeah. The interesting thing that I found in hospital networks is they have really difficult networking problems to solve in terms of bandwidth isolation. Mm. So your product could be labeled by them to be very slow when in fact their whole bandwidth speeds are just slow in general so anything by extension will be slow it's the kind of thing you only learn if you like visit them specifically
0: for sure i I bet i bet like a lot of if you were to go back historically i bet a tremendous amount of java is defined by exactly that problem because at the beginning it seemed like it was heavily a client server sort of thing and then of course it was sun so they're like geniuses about you know networks and so much of it was probably built around the uh and and it, what, you probably remember better than I do, but whatever that uh, the stone tablets of distributed computing are with like the five laws. And that was sort of like every, every young Java neophyte was uh, required to memorize that, or they had to do a bunch of sit-ups or something. So that's probably all that networking client server stuff, probably freaked Java out for a while. Gave it uh needs to go through some therapy to not worry about it so much in the present. Anyhow, well, you know, uh, so we were going to talk about, uh, those, uh, various stacks of things, but you're also making me think. So in, in your, in your capacity, you said some interesting thing there of like, uh, you know, working on things that, that IBM is interested in and, and, and in developer relations and, and like how at a company that size, in your experience, like what does that interest mean? And, and, and what I mean by that to qualify it is, um you know, I know i b m well enough, and Microsoft is nowadays also in this, and their interest in something isn't always like even indirectly commercially related like there seems to be a large amount of just generally like uh we're gonna improve the world of computing by doing this thing I mean I'm kind of leading you a little while, but like how how do you in your own mind filter what would be interesting for for you to to work on with regards to IBM, or whatever company you may be working for.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Obviously, some of the big ones that pop up are just if you work for a company that has a sort of Kubernetes hosting platform Mm. and you have a specific bug that that team is running into, that would maybe be like a high-profile thing, like, oh, I need this piece to scale well to suit this need. And those are all features that make sense to as a person that works upstream to work on. But then there's also the the aspect of just generally being a good citizen in, in the community. So maybe instead of coming in and just dropping a bunch of feature requests that you'd like to add, trying to work on some of the more janitorial type of things that just happen with bigger open source projects, like fixing bug backlogs and joining planning meetings to try to figure out what are things that, Kubernetes or Istio want to accomplish within Q1, Q2, setting up dashboards for overall testing stack across your SIG. So for example, in SIG networking, we've managed to get a pretty pretty good overview of how our test suites are doing overall among all the PRs that are happening inside of the SIG network umbrella, anything related to networking that we kind of own. That was a task that I helped to drive along. Not that it was my original idea, but with inside of Kubernetes, you know, they they made this sort of pattern and I took it upon myself to try to bring that back to SIG networking, set that up. And now every SIG network meeting, we go over our test suites, say, do we have owners that are looking at these issues? We have maybe this certain part of the testing suite is flaking out a lot, meaning that you know, every now and then the test just fails for whatever reason. It might just be general chattiness in, in the cloud, quotes, or there might be a legitimate failure. But those sorts of things prioritizing are, are good to
0: look at. Yeah, it's an interesting filter. I mean, it's almost, tell me if I've got this wrong. I mean, it almost sounds like too good to be true. <laughs> but, but it is, there are, there are certain, uh, let's call them stacks of software that that at some point they seem to become so broad and industry relevant that companies it doesn't drive everything that their involvement is but there's a certain patronage that you do of it almost like not to be all rainbow and sandals of open source but you sort of like you know you want to make sure that your streets aren't dirty and that things are picked up and so you kind of maintain the commons if you will and so as you're saying right like if the uh if, if the test suites are like flaky every now and then someone needs to go fix the networking (laughs) and like, there's no real, like, you know, you're not going to go visit your, uh, your salespeople and be like, if I fix this networking, Q2 is really going to be killer. It's just more like the stuff will work and it doesn't suck. And then that leads to like other business things eventually. And also we just care about the things working well, which I think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, there was a point where I was working on, uh, public cloud stuff at some, some rant, some company and, uh, the people building it were using, uh, OpenStack, which was thrilling for them. And they would keep an ongoing list of like things we would like the OpenStack community to fix, <laughs> which, which is a little bit like this, but it was interesting to kind of look through that list. And it seemed like it, se- it seemed like there has to be a, an interesting way of doing product management for, open source things that are huge platforms whether it's like a linux or uh to some extent something like you know whatever is in lamp stack lamp stack nowadays but some, definitely something like kubernetes i'm sure whoever is managing the backlog or the flow of feature requests and what you work on has a really a uniquely weird job to how to how to balance all of that stuff so they make sure to avoid like the uh i don't know if you remember all the conspiracy theories of like HTML and XML, but at some point that just became a really it seems like it became a cynical thing of like what the browser people want to do for whatever their agenda is, rather than just worrying about the uh I don't know, the virtuousness of what they were doing. And it sure is nice to avoid that in an open source project. Oh yeah. It, it it's
1: definitely interesting to to look back. On some of those earlier days, I actually pitched a talk saying that microservices have a thing since we started working with SOAP in the early 2000s. Mm. And someone called me out, oh, this is a, this talk title or abstract is either going to scare people because you mentioned SOAP, or it's going to get them excited.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, no, you should keep pitching that because to, to, uh, I would say to mainstream crowds, people would... Not that you want to eat soap to get all punny, but people would eat that up. Like that is like, <laughs> I I even have to remind I have to remind myself of this constantly. Is like, you know, in in your area, you store that you you more so than me. But like, um, like personally, I get really once I learn something and I learn about it, I get really bored about talking about it more. And I I also just assume that like everyone sort of like knows that already. So I want to talk about the next difficult thing that I don't know much about. But in reality, in my experience, going out to talk with people, most everyone is like, yeah, so I just finished getting my ESV upgraded. So let's start there, <laughs> right? Like I understand that microservices sure, yeah. and all this stuff is just going to be like freaking amazing. And it's going to change my life and make my company lots of money. But at the moment, I know what soap is. <laughs> so, let's pull back the clock and start there and start analogizing to what that is and explain what this stuff is and why I would change it and so forth and so on.
1: Yes, it is initially difficult too sometimes when I'm coming up with new talk ideas that I want to submit to Cloud Native Con for Cloud Foundry Summit, how deep to go and how much introductory material should there be for someone that just came in, they just heard about kubernetes or containers or something and i want to make sure to suit them without having people leave halfway through the session because i'm just repeating things that they read about
0: yeah yeah so speaking of that that's a very unintentional segue i thought i thought we would talk about the following two things and whatever else falls out so one because you have experience in the kubernetes world i thought it would be nice to talk about like not so much like what a replica set is and what you type in here and complain about how hard it is to get set up and all of the sort of uh The things that if I imagine you went to a uh, kind of a nice mechanic shop, they would be debating about like, you know, which nuts are better to use and like some engine from a car from 10 years, like, you know, a bunch of insider stuff. Although that's delightful, but more of like, as we were talking about. So like, if we start, maybe not as far back as soap, but if we start with like, whatever the traditional thing is, like I was, I was thinking earlier this morning that like monolith always means whatever the current or previous application development style was like I'm, I'd have to go back and check the record, but I'm pretty sure when we invented three tier development, we were complaining about monoliths before that. But anyways, like it would be nice to start with basically with Kubernetes and then we'll get to Istio. But like, unless I'm a public cloud and, and I need to manage workloads executing, like, why does this thing exist? Like, like, what does it do for me? And like, as a part of that, like how, what is like the type of application development or or running applications that I'm going to be doing that creates the need for this thing? So that's, that's incredibly broad, but I'm sure you can figure out some interesting answers to it. Sure. So I always like to
1: kind of uh, go back to the earlier podcasts like when they were interviewing some of the originating founders of Kubernetes like Joe Beta and Brennan Burns Tim Hawken when people asked them why originally did Kubernetes come about and the story I believe that Joe always told was when he had a new SVP of sorts and they came in and they said okay what's going on with Google Cloud here well we can launch these VMs Really easily, and you pay a bit of money, you get a VM. And the SVP was concerned, like, okay, then now what? Because with just this VM alone, I still have to do all of the work of putting all of my dependencies in there, putting my runtimes in there, making sure that I keep this updated and everything. And then I need to make sure that over time, I either replace this in place, or I, I use you know my configuration management thing to get that going. And it felt like a lot of work for someone that just wanted to deploy their application. And we've seen platforms, of course, come out of that, come out of this type of need. Uh, some of the earlier days, I think for Roku would have been the the golden mantra of, I've got some code, I want to do a git push, and this thing is all of a sudden running. And Uh, yourself, you know, as a member of Pivotal, of course, Cloud Foundry came about and created a whole platform out of this sort of thing as well. And it it works with the Git Push model. Every platform is very opinionated. And then there was maybe another sort of class of people that maybe that just wasn't as deep as they wanted to go. They wanted to be able to control their things at a finer level other than just some health checking to make sure... I return 200 that so this thing's okay. So, when you talk about containers and, and you have this explosion of containers, I think a lot of, some people like to try to judge it based on what they know about some of the heap settings you can tune in Java to control. Okay, if my application's acting up, I want the JBM to basically limit it or even you know throw an OOM such that the application will die and try to resurrect itself. But not everyone also is using a language based on the JVM. So you see an explosion of containers in this movement to try to take all of these various programming languages and be able to deploy your application in that same way that you had that Git push type of mantra, but also you have a, an artifact that everyone can kind of reason about across different programming languages. You, not, you don't just get a war file that you throw up here or mm. have some more of a Python wheel that you can throw over there. You, in the end you end up with this essentially box which can be deployed across these things but a box also isn't good enough if you stack up all of these boxes on one VM you still have to worry about each of the individual pieces within each of those VMs so you need to have something even over top of that which we can effectively call an orchestrator of sorts. Then the orchestrator takes care of partitioning these things out across these machines. Uh, Then you'll run into scale problems because it's not just good enough to have something watching your things and responding to if they're getting into problems. So you wanna try to intelligently schedule these things out between your machines, maybe uh, put some more logic in there such that things that are guaranteed the need to talk to each other will be scheduled in a way that they are closer together uh, to minimize some of the service chatter between them. But all these things kind of come together in a way to attempt to take what, as you mentioned, was your monolith before and try to ease you into a way of breaking this down in a way that doesn't put too much stress on the developer to need to know all the inner workings. Now, if you want, you can get down to that level where you are you know picking uh your favorite runtime, whether that be rocket or docker or anything, and you can get down to the level of each tuning these each individual machines and tweaking some of those values. But the real goal of this is to try to bring a lot of the lessons that have been learned by people that have been doing these operations things for ten plus years and cooking those lessons into a product that a developer can get started on their favorite cloud or even attempt to run locally to test this out and build in a lot of the lessons such that they could just get back to that, I've got some code, I want it to run over here.
0: So to test that out, let me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me run a few like theoretic statements past you and, and you can we can kind of like discuss them and, and you know I'm no fan of Socrates, so I'm not trying to uh, slowly drag you into some corner by in which you just start, you know, whatever. It's it's more of just like, because, cause, you know, I always have a lot of like, uh, uh, I maybe overuse the term reverse engineer, but I'm always trying to like reverse engineer from present state back to intentions or whatever. And so, so the first thing is like, just to do my ritual complaining, man, I hate the word schedule. Like that's such a strange, I'm sure there's a reason that people choose scheduling, but it's like, like based on what you were saying like to me scheduling is like purely like a temporal time thing it's like it's like cron or whatever and and it's just based on like timing out when i want to run something but it like i mean tell me if i'm wrong but it like means so much more in the context of kubernetes than just like at 12:59 p.m. run this script but but it so so like to that end, like what 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 are all the tasks that scheduling does in this context?
1: Sure. So there there are different forms, as you mentioned. There's the cron jobs, which I think has just been kind of renamed to jobs now inside of Kubernetes that would be your, I've got a task that I need to run on some set period of time across these machines. Go and do that task. Here's your schedule to do that. But then you also schedule general Uh, pods or applications uh, but we still effectively call them scheduling things even though it's not something that is uh just going to be thrown out there it runs and then runs to completion and then stops goes again
0: right it's not it's not Uh, like a uh, it's not like a batch job uh in in that case like a batch job i see you schedule that but it but it batch job has like a finite begin and end and it might be reoccurring and then that's it like but it's it execution that occurs.
1: Right. I think where scheduling comes into like these long term things is because of the the ease of use of deploying out a lot of these long term jobs and then oh I've got a quick bug fix I needed go out and do everything you just did again that kind of comes into the schedule thing and it forces you into a model where you you see how easy it is to deploy these things and, and upgrade them in a fashion that's not going to take down your whole stack. You know, I want to take out portions of this. And maybe that's where it comes back to, if if you think of the word schedule as like those short-term tasks, you can also think of replacing your applications in a, a way that isn't going to be like a take down half of my uh, internet in order to get these things out there. Yeah, You can put them out there and then quickly schedule yet again, another release of your application. And it gets you back to like those those lessons of being able to deploy like that magical uh, blank times a day type of thing. But it's also not just about being able to do that quickly. Uh, similar to uh, the HPC space. Sometimes you want to literally have the best fit for your application. So in in high performance computing, they have their own set of tools and everything. And slowly we've been trying to integrate them in Kubernetes, the sorts of machine learning and big batch processes that sometimes take weeks for these given research projects to complete. And in this case, you want the best possible node, uh, node being VM or bare metal or any other runtime. You want the best fit for your task to make sure that that task runs quicker than what would happen if you just said, hey, go ahead and spin this uh, up on nodes X, Y, and Z and have at it. So the scheduling comes in and being able to intelligently sense that you need to be close by other applications to perform. So in a machine learning case, uh, the more machines you can spread out this work to, the better. But you wouldn't want to spread it out to one side of the data center and the other side of the data center, because it, there's going to there's going to be a, a significant amount of lag there to chatter among the data center or data centers if you're deploying to independent ones. So the scheduling is being able to intelligently sense the type of workload and, and the intent. That you're trying to achieve and it will allow the operator to say you know I, I really want this thing to be close to this other thing to make sure I limit the amount of time that this is going to take otherwise I might as well just be deploying these things individually to VMs and trying to do it myself yeah. so you want to try to build those lessons into the scheduler and have it sense when I'm in a situation that I need to react to this type of thing
0: Yeah. And, and, and I guess like the broader word is like orchestration and, and like to be a little, I don't know, uh, obtuse about it. It's sort of like, as you were describing, if you, if you say that scheduling doesn't always do things based on time, but the other way it might determine how to do things is, as you were saying, like the, uh, the context that something is like in, in your HPC example, right? Like I need a lot of horsepower. So I want you to schedule me on a, a, um, I don't know what word to use, a, a, a node, a box, whatever that has a lot of horsepower. So instead of it being like, I want you to run me at 3 PM, it's, I want you to run me with a lot of computational resource. So there's like this different thing that your schedule runs off, or it could be also like the scheduling, is based on, uh, I need these other resources in order to operate. Like I need a database or I need whatever. So, and, and then also, uh, I'm also very dependent on fast network speeds. So I need you to schedule me close to whatever that resource is, whatever closeness may mean. So if you sort of like, uh, in scheduling, if you make time, just a variable, then, I guess scheduling makes sense. I should go back and look up what the formal definition of scheduling is and see if like all the, uh, all the dictionary wonks are like, no, 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 ontologically scheduling only deals with time or, or see if scheduling has this more, uh, variable thing. But that's, I guess that's why we have the word orchestration. And then, you know, scheduling maybe is easier to spell. Sounds cooler. I don't know. Orchestration sounds pretty cool. It's interesting. No one. <laughs> it's interesting. No one uses the word chore. Uh, what, what would you say? Choreography, choreograph. Like, because that's another sort of like. Uh, maybe that's too frou frou and dancey for all the nerds who want to uh, think about how to coordinate everything.
1: Choreo choreography sounds great. I mean the, and this all comes back to like the lesson uh, from uh, our favorite Andrew Clay Schaefer's book uh, that he pitches of that Google SRE book. You know they want to make sure that when uh, an intern schedules this low priority map reduce job that this doesn't take up all the resources that ads needs to do to stay up and running and keep it, keep making money.
0: Yeah. So, so that, that was the other thing. I mean, there's two more things and then we, we should go over like uh like, like how Istio fits into all of this. Cause I, cause I think, I think talking about Kubernetes and Istio is like, as with other things in the Kubernetes world, uh, Talking about things that you add to what Kubernetes is, is really, it's a good exercise in defining what Kubernetes does and does not do. But anyways, so so you hit upon something else that I think is, is interesting. So the broader topic is like, so what kind of applications or workloads does this thing want you to do, <laughs> right? and And you were kind of alluding to it earlier, right? Like ultimately, if you're doing Java development, It wants you to produce like an object oriented sort of multi-service war file that maybe will depend on other services. It wants you to do a three-tier application basically. And I don't know, you know, Java people will debate that you can do all these other things and there's wacky things like Genie and blah, blah, blah. But the bulk of what people end up using it for is like writing three-tier applications that have a UI, some coordination stuff in the middle and a data source. And so the most complicated thing is doing like uh w- complicated workflow ordering where there's a dependency of which way some piece of data gets handled, but it's generally just giant CRUD applications that you might search over. That's a vast simplification. But so when it comes to like the application style that a Kubernetes wants you to do, like how would you describe that application style? And And I'll only make one more statement before I stop. Like, it seems like the origin of a lot of this stuff, whether it's like a Mesos or to some extent a Cloud Foundry or or Kubernetes is like, we have a lot of web applications where people come in very frequently and they're like reading a stream of stuff. And every now and then they write back to it. Like, you know, whether that's, you know, for Mezos, I think is like, you know, Twitter, or like, whatever it is, Facebook does, and a lot of the Google properties, like, you know, when you go search for something, it's not like you're writing something back. Uh, And so I don't know, I mean, that seems like the type of application that a lot of this is built around, and it's generalized. But it also like, it has interesting implications for the way you do your application, and the way your application has to be formed. So all of that, (laughs) that's a big lead up. But like, When you think about how someone needs to make their application to take advantage of Kubernetes, like how would you describe that application?
1: Uh, It's interesting you bring up Mesos. Before I joined this team to work on open source stuff, I worked in the Watson side where I set up our Mesos infrastructure to run a lot of the Watson developer services. Mm. And so we were going through this whole decomposing traditionally on-prem based IBM products to these microservice or cloud-native type of patterns. And one of the interesting things that these types of distributed systems make very apparent is some of the things that you may have taken for granted being able to de- to have a deployment method of I'm giving you this CD with my application on it, go ahead and plug that into your machine, click the install button. Okay, it runs on that machine forevermore. Go ahead and call our service department if you have any problems. Uh, right. Taking one of those types of applications, putting it in a container and then just deploying it on top of Mesos or Kubernetes or, in- or Cloud Foundry it is gonna show you immediately all of the things that you have t- taken for granted being able to control on a single machine before. So for example, easy things like storage what do I do immediately with storage in this sort of Kubernetes-based system? I could potentially use local storage, but what happens when I run into application restarts? Am I going to come back to the same node? Potentially, maybe maybe not. So I need to make sure that I'm thinking about things like storage and, and whereas before I may have just made assumptions that you know you you installed the CD on the box here. So I'm up and running, I've got all this space, I tell you that I need two terabytes of room, you plug that in the machine and we're good to go. Uh, Other more heavyweight applications that rely on storage, things like solar or uh, Zookeeper, all these other things, when you try to decompose these sorts of applications, you'll also find out some of the assumptions you made about just general communication inside of a monolith. With or inside of machines that you thought were always gonna be in the same rack. And you might hit latencies that you were unexpected before and that you didn't expect inside of your, your code base that you're gonna now have to deal with. The patterns that Kubernetes and these types of systems uh, apply around you are really trying to transition you into that sort of cloud native type of pattern. And, and to those lessons that people like Netflix have been dealing with for years where they they can't guarantee that, you know, every machine they land on is going to be, you know, just as good as uh, any other machine. So you have to start to think about any sorts of problems the way that anyone would think about a bull running around their data center would have to think about Uh despite the bull hitting all these machines, I still have to be able to serve my content. So when you decompose uh, your applications and you you try to go to a pattern that fits these sorts of things, there's a lot of lessons that just get brought up immediately, like networking, connectivity, your storage, as well as uh, how well my application actually runs in the way that I expected it to before. And we talked a little bit about the JVM heap settings. And before I might've expected that I'm going to be able to use this whole machine myself. But in the Kubernetes sense, most likely you're running on some big beefy machine alongside someone else's application. And if you're a company that deploys a lot of applications, you need to decide almost Which applications would you say make me money, whereas which applications can I say, if I'm having problems in my data center, can I safely kill off and allow to maybe pen for a bit while they find a different place? And which ones where if they go down and I can't maintain the service uh, availability that I've promised my customers, am I going to start losing money and have people complain?
0: Yeah. That's kind of like a thought provoking way of thinking about things. I mean, one sort of like go in and marginalia it up what you set up like, uh, well, to introduce a word, it's sort of like you mostly want stateless applications, right? I mean, that's sort of like a big deal (laughs) that, and and my understanding, I haven't ever programmed a stateless application really. I mean, I don't know, whatever, in the way that it's understood nowadays, but like That mostly means that, of course, there is state, but as much as possible, you want every component in your application to not depend on state beyond what it might store in memory. And so if you need state, uh, you sort of offload that to some other service that maintains state for you, which has a host of all of its other problems and all sorts of things to it. But that's the basic principle. And And then to pull back from that, you're like, well, that sounds like a hassle, so why am I going to put up with that? And then that gets to the other thing to, to add, you know, to comment on what you're saying is if you have a stateless application, it allows you to do all this, let's call it, well, whatever. It's probably just going to be Kubernetes at the end of the day or decade. It allows you to run on Kubernetes. And what that does is it, adds, it basically allows you to run high-scale applications a lot better And by a lot better, there will probably be more. I know you're not supposed to say uptime, but from an end user perspective, the application will work more frequently at at an acceptable speed. Um, And then also what that implies is you can probably run on cheaper infrastructure than if you were just using VMs. And, And so the result of all of that is like basically, so the types of applications you want to use this for which are a huge amount of the applications that exist nowadays are probably anytime you have a mobile application, definitely anytime you do a software as a service for more than let's say 50 users, (laughs) maybe not 50, but like, you know, whatever, whatever you may have, you're going to need to do it in this style. And increasingly that's most any kind of application. And then, you know, HPC is always its own like exotic little corner there, but um, the nature of of the the workloads that run on HPC fit themselves to this model oddly weird because they're not like HPC is usually not like a huge amount of users. Usually there's like one user, but they have multiple processes going on that are sort of like uh, I don't know, parallelized. So there's multiple agents sort of running in there. I don't know, I don't know HPC that well. But it seems like that profile of application is what you would want to run on it. So in contrast, If I basically have like a departmental app that is just like there's the five people who work on it and we update Warsaw's sales records every quarter. Like I probably don't want to call in all the fancy Kubernetes people right now to convert that to a microservices application that like is highly fault tolerant. (laughs) Like I more want these higher scale applications that are more business critical. Sure. Yeah. Well, you could
1: you could definitely make the case that this thing just is not worth porting over to here. Um, now, there has been, of course, a lot of enhancements within side of Kubernetes to suit these sorts of applications. Because, as you mentioned before, there's always going to be someone that comes along and just said, "Hey, man, I just got to the cloud. I just took all my stuff that I had in my own data centers and I put it in the cloud. Now you're telling me everything needs to be rewritten to suit this other system? Yeah. Probably not going to happen anytime soon. So. Kubernetes does have the a lot more knobs and things you can tune to suit. Just, I've got this application sitting here and I really don't want to rewrite it, but I'm telling you right now, it has state in it for sure. So you could use the stateful set type of thing inside of Kubernetes to make that assumption of local storage a little more easy that make the identity between all of these independent things, pretty reliable. And then this is a little more transparent to someone that is just used to deploying this thing and updating it uh, once or, or twice you know, a month or something like that. But once you start to maybe start with newer things or you start to decompose things and you you find some of the values of trying to independently scale these things out and think more horizontally in terms of your scale instead of just stamping out big blocks of things for your memory. You might then decide that, you know, this big thing, I have it running in Kubernetes, you know, good job. Uh, but maybe I I do want to start to take some of those pieces out and maybe redesign them. So because you've got all these primitives there and you find how easy it could be to do these sorts of things, maybe you are inspired to take some of those things that you traditionally wouldn't have thought of rewriting that have just been there, uh, you've declared as legacy and bringing them into the sort of ecosystem. So yeah. there, there are, you don't need to be a uh, quote cloud native to run inside, but a lot of the lessons and the value, as you mentioned, is only going to be realized when you start to
0: adopt some of those patterns. It sort of, it's, it strikes me that there's like multiple uh, paths that lead to using Kubernetes. One of them is like, I'm a public cloud provider. I've just answered your question why I'm interested in it, (laughs) right? Like I I run a giant infrastructure that I want as many people as possible to use. And I need a way of just like managing all of that in a highly automated fashion that does all the bells and whistles that you have. And then the second one is a much lesser version of that. But you would say, I work at an organization that you would probably call large and like a public cloud provider. I just run a lot of different applications and workloads and I need to define a way. I don't want, if I have 5,000 workloads and applications I run, I don't want to have 5,000 different ways of how that's done, how it's packaged up, how it's managed, how things connect together. And so I want to have a standard way of doing it all, which back to your talk thing was sort of like a lot of what, uh, soap and WS star was trying to accomplish, uh, in, at least it's sort of at the edges, right? Like it didn't really, I don't remember it ever specifying how these things would run, but it would specify how they would integrate with each other. Um, and then I guess it gets down into buses and stuff, but like it was a, compared to like what cloud native is, it was an interesting, the Venn diagram would be interesting to contemplate of what WS star did and what, what cloud native stuff does. So anyways, so you're a large organization. You basically want to have a standard for how applications are, packaged run and how they talk with each other, how they integrate with each other. Integrate's the wrong word, but how they connect to each other and work with each other, which kind of, I think, gets Istio stuff. And then there's a third path, which is I'm purely a user of something and I have some software I want to deploy and someone's told me I need to deploy to this thing, (laughs) right? And, And in that third case, it's kind of like that's where departmental apps are. It's just like, I don't really care if it's Kubernetes or Mesos or like I'm running a ghost script to like bare metal install DOS, whatever, just like give me an environment to run my applications. And so it's almost like, uh, it's not like false, a false equivalency or whatever that means, but it's like kind of a moot point, this departmental thing. It's just like those people just have to run on whatever it is you provide them. And so they don't really, they don't really enter the conversation. I don't know. You, you think those like three major stick figures fit somewhere on the diagram of how people approach this stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, those clouds are usually, we see them, them all the time. You know, the big clouds, I've got a lot of stuff by default. What's the solution you provide me. And then even down to the, just, I've got maybe a few, two or three, or, you know, maybe I've gone, uh, whole hog into the microservices scene. So I've got like 50 or certain services and I need to control all of these with my team of two operators that maybe know a couple of languages really good. Uh, what Kubernetes is going to allow you to do is take some of those things that have been realized by people that have been doing operations sort of things or, or the site reliability engineer types of things and building those into just that common way of scaling and health checking and decomposing these machines assigning intelligently to make sure that you minimize these sorts of things all under the umbrella of like one artifact being that of the container
0: right right and 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 i think that that gets to another like little uh what would you call it i don't know cul-de-sac of confusion and uselessness which is I, I, you know, back when, back when I started it at uh, Pivotal, like three years ago now, we used to go on and on about how we had a, uh, an opinionated whatever, right? Like whatever the question was, the answer was opinionated and which is kind of like not a very helpful answer to give to people who want to give you money, (laughs) like enterprises. Like that's a sort of a bad first move to be like, that's adorable. Let me tell you how you're going to live your life. (laughs) But you know, some people like that, I guess. Um, but I think I think what we and other people are trying to get to and, and definitely kind of like, at least from my perspective, it's almost an unspoken part of cloud native Kubernetes think is like, we are defining a way of running applications. And basically, you need to run your applications that way right and and granted like you were saying you can like you can set things up just to be like a monolithic application running in a i don't know the terminology so i maybe will embarrass myself you can have some giant interstellar pod that runs your monolith but that basically means that you're not this it's, it's you know like you don't really need this you're using like a mac truck to transport a gallon of milk or something it's <laughs> so ridiculous or i don't know what the analogy would be <laughs> but um so you could do that, but if you want to do things in a truly cloud-native fashion, uh, and this is where people point to the 12 factors or whatever, but like you have to like package, architect, and write your applications in this relatively very specific way, and then also the way that your operations people are going to manage it is equally specific and opinionated right? Like what you're going to be, what you're going to be doing a lot is basically rebooting things when they break. And you're going to be doing a lot of health checks and something is just going to go bad. And you just like, screw it. I don't really care why reboot it. And then if rebooting, it doesn't fix it. Then maybe you want to do some diagnosis of how it's working and then on and on and on, right? Like how you monitor this stuff and manage it is determined a lot by the fact that it's a, a cloud native approach to things. And like, may, maybe that's the thing I'm always questing after. Is like, so what is that like? What's that tome of opinions of how I write things? Like, what's the experience of a developer doing it? And and then just to just to wrap up, and then so that we don't go too too long, we should talk about actual Istio stuff. But it seems like, uh, um, oh, I've lost my train of thought here with myself. This is a problem with my speaking style. I don't know if it's speaking so much as monologuing, <laughs> but, but, but it seems like, uh, no, I've, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say next, but, but it's anyways, you have this way of, of doing development, unless you're doing things in that way, then a lot of this is just like uh, a bunch of hassle for you, for you to uh, deal with. Maybe I'll remember what I was going to say anyways. So, uh, so then, then on to like the, the Istio thing. So on top of all of that and tell me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of like, so we've got these applications written in this this particular style, this cloud native style, and that's wonderful. Everyone's all excited about the resilience, and uh, we're, we're doing all this, and it's fantastic. And then, and then it seems like what where Istio comes in is like, oh, th- each of these like little par- component needs to talk to another component and have like a highly networked way of doing things, and and basically having a microservices architecture and and it turns out that kubernetes on its own doesn't really help out with that stuff very much like it doesn't really coordinate who has access to what service and what happens if that service doesn't work and how do i have a registry to look all these things up and how do i really wire it together i mean that's that's my impression of what something like an istio does based on well the need that it fills based on what it what based on what it does but like why why does a steel exist what, what does it fill in that kubernetes doesn't do already
1: yeah that's a great question I, I, in some cases i i'm reminded of like the uh, the javascript the good parts book if you remember that was like the really slim book <laughs> yeah yeah
0: exactly <laughs> that's that's funny that's that's a good visual joke is to get the uh, i'm sure it's up to the eighth edition but the eighth edition of the everything in javascript and then put it next to the the good things like just just inches of inches of the spine is very telling
1: also the analogy i always trotted off for that is like uh istio is like kubernetes the missing parts in some cases (laughs) right right so when you talk about kubernetes you know you got to kubernetes okay i'm deploying things out there in a common way uh i can see that they're working kind of in a common way uh and maybe you've gauged Kubernetes to be more of like an operator sort of focused thing that people that are used to having to manually schedule these things or manually take care of figuring out, is this one individual thing working? uh, They realize a lot of the benefits immediately of Kubernetes. But for someone that is just a developer, um, that just doesn't solve all of the things that they really want. They still now have all of these services out there that they've deployed and they have monitoring dashboards set up for each individual one and they're chatting somehow with JSON and maybe rest between those, but they don't get a good picture of everything in total unless they've come up with some sufficiently complex dashboards that tell them globally for this service stack, uh, I'm, handling this percentage requests, or I'm not serving up a ton of fours over here. So what Istio is really doing is when when I start talking about Istio a lot to people inside of it, IBM, as well as outside, it seems to really uh, excite someone that w- would kind of coin themselves as a developer because they see the immediate value of it as a developer whereas an operator sees the immediate value of Kubernetes right up front.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So the the missing parts of Kubernetes from, from the developer sort of point is how can I tell uh, what things are not working out uh, so well and how do I automatically rebalance a lot of the problems that I'm having to other applications? These are things that, Kubernetes just doesn't work. It doesn't work at that layer in your in your OSI model. It knows about ports. It knows about it can hit an HTTP endpoint to see if it returns a 200, but it doesn't allow you to easily introspect from there individual metrics that may gauge if you're really healthy or not. Mm. So one of the big selling points about Istio is being able to work with this sort of sidecar pattern that you might be hearing about. Uh, Netflix and others uh, like Google, because they control their whole stack, they have a certain amount of languages that they can say, you know, we support this language, this language and this language. And if you're using something else, unfortunately we just, you, you know, you might be on your own here. And they write libraries specifically for those things to make the development of uh, metrics within side of your application uh, a lot easier to collect and, and reason about. And they have a ton of resources that they can throw at developing those libraries to make sure that when you call another service, I know exactly how that's gonna work because you have a language specific binding to call out to other services or collect metrics yourself. Or to limit the amount of destruction you can cause throughout the system by rate limiting requests or certain users, dark launching features and whatnot. But in in today's uh, kind of startup scene, or even just in companies that don't place very stringent requests on the, the set of language, uh, programming languages that you can use, you don't have those luxuries, and that's where you see this sort of sidecar pattern coming up where you inject uh, in the kubernetes sense you would put in your pod another process effectively that'll intercept any communication that you have that's meant for another service and collect those metrics collect the traces between the applications tell based on where based on the headers where this request should go know that i can't send this request over here because that request is where that server is potentially under load, and this what the sidecar allows you to do is is basically just to pull this alongside of your applications without changing your application to suit a very specific set of libraries that you have chosen for your company to to use to try to reason about and that you contribute to. And the big selling point.
0: So, so to interrupt you because I think this is another particular uh, particular word thing. So a sidecar is basically like a proxy or a pipe?
1: Yeah, so uh, the sidecar uh, mantra is very similar to just, you know, like a motorcycle sidecar. Uh, Everyone's got one here, and this is just how you're transporting a second person, you're always going to have this sidecar here. So it, it does kind of act like a proxy, but then, you know, you might get people that are very uh, adamant about what how a proxy should act that you can't really call it like a a load bouncer or a proxy sort of thing Yeah, effectively treat as a proxy
0: yeah i guess a proxy in this this case is a not overloaded underloaded term (laughs) like like it means a very narrow thing whereas and that's why i was kind of throwing out pipe in the old linux sense of the word like on the command i can never figure out the difference between a pipe and a redirect but never mind that but like on the command you basically are introducing a pipe that's going to take whatever the input is do something to it or even make like a branching decision and then go on to whatever the next step was and then i think the other correct me if i'm wrong but the other thing of a sidecar is that like um it can be injected afterwards without the thing having to know about it so like a load balancer is is a good uh is a good example right like you can write your 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 web application and someone could put like 10 load balancers in front of it to do various things and you would never have to know about it. And, th- and then, I don't know, I mean, is that sort of like a fair summary from a marketing person like myself?
1: For sure, yeah. This is essentially a proxy and um, mentioning of the load balancer is interesting because, yeah, you would think normally that you're placing the load balancer at the top and outside traffic coming in hits load balancer and it's distributed somewhere and internal things – Communicate between each other because they have hard coded the strings that they need to communicate with, but what this sidecar allows you to do is basically put effectively a sort of load balancer proxy in front of each of your individual applications, mm. so you get all the benefits of that edge load balancer uh between inside of the data center between your applications as well,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what I've always gotten hung up with that term, I think about these things too much is like, when I think of a sidecar, it's like, it's like attached to the motorcycle. And basically the sidecar, if you'll pardon the French is like fucked, like it can determine nothing. (laughs) Like, like it it has the least amount of control in that, in that setup as possible versus like, like what would be to my mind, a better analogy. It's sort of like, like a governor or like something that is uh It's almost like, yeah, I I can't think of an analogy off the top of my head, but it's more like there's the sidecar potentially has a huge amount of control over the motorcycle. So it's almost like a virus in the sense of like, remember like in uh, Independence Day where they go up there and they put a virus in the machine or or innumerable Star Trek plots where they go in and, and like they put some little sidecar, so to speak, in the main computer's memory banks. And then it allows them to control the computer and like govern what they see. Oh, I know a good analogy. In every spy movie, there's a scene where they go in and they install a sidecar in the closed circuit, the CCTV, and then they can broadcast like fake video imagery. It's every caper movies like this, too. So all of the hallways look like everything's fine. But because they have this video sidecar installed, they can filter out what's actually happening and replace it with the dummy footage. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Um like in Blue Streak in the beginning, when uh, Martin Lawrence is in there, well, I guess it's more of a heist movie, but yeah, they display like the normal everyday scene in the hallway, when under the covers, you know they're stealing your diamonds and opening up the safe.
0: right So there you go. that solves my sidecar problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so, then, so, so yeah, that's an interesting right, like the
1: sidecar that you might think of before it could be like a logging daemon or something, yeah, you're just attaching it on there as like a rider or a metric stamen.
0: That's right. Yeah. Like it's almost like the sidecar there is like, you know, hold my helmet or my beer, as it were like, they're, they're more of a servant in my mind to like, whatever the main thing is, but, but fair enough. It's, all, but then again, sidecar's is a cool, cool. That seems cooler than just like, I don't know. And you can't really call things slave anymore. That doesn't seem good, but anyhow, uh, like, yeah. uh, so, so then, so then to that end, what what are like what are like the the services that something like istio provides like what are these what are the missing parts that it does
1: sure so the sidecar that is uh within istio is is the the default is envoy and envoy is is going to be like your your kind of controller of these things to bring together the what's effectively being termed as like the service mesh so meshing all of the pieces together in order to control communication between those things so what Once Envoy is injected into your pod, there's a couple of different ways to do that. You can do it manually by just tossing out your deployment script into the binary and it munges it and attaches the Envoy sidecar on there, or you can deploy out a sidecar injector if you're using something like Kubernetes, which will automatically watch anything that's being deployed with the given parameters, and then it'll attach it on for you before it's actually scheduled to a given node. And what this gives you is the ability to still talk DNS the way that Kubernetes is going to allow you uh, to communicate between two services. But uh, as soon as Envoy is deployed with your application on a machine, it creates an IP tables rule, which will start to redirect all traffic destined for this given pod, or make up the service to the Envoy container. And because now all traffic passes through Envoy, you can see from start to finish uh, all of the metrics that are going to be gathered at that HTTP call layer. So if I call out to my given service uh, that displays, uh, we use the book info example in Istio. If I have a service made of a few parts, I have my presentation page, I have another service that shows reviews for a book, and then another service which displays ratings for that given book. Because uh, the product page called out to the reviews page and both of them are using Envoy. I basically get to see that request from start to finish in order to gather how long the request took, uh, was it successful or not? Was there any like redirection along the way? as well as all of the steps that it took along the way if it bounced around other services. So one of the big selling features of Istio is being able to drop these proxies in there and gather this whole new world of metrics that maybe you didn't get before. So uh, kind of the example I was doing in the beginning, I started to decompose this. Now I've got you know a Graphite dashboard for each of my given services, but that doesn't tell me overall how my application is doing. So because I get to see from start to finish the call chain through here, I get unique metrics gathered between all of these things which tell me more about my, my services as a whole that make up one given product that I, can't, that I couldn't really get unless I was carefully instrumenting my applications to know that necessary call chain to develop the metrics and whatnot.
0: Mm.
1: So Istio tries to sell this almost as like a drop-in. You drop this in, Look at all these protocol-level metrics that you gathered. Aside from metrics, you know, just being able to stare at dashboards as well is not something that's extremely useful because in the end, someone would have to carefully notice that things are in trouble and then maybe switch their load balancer or deployments over to more healthy nodes, like if a part of the data center or whatnot is under trouble. So it's really what you can do with those metrics in the end that really shows some of the unique values of Istio. So the routing functionality is one of the big selling points that uh, comes up next. How can I control, given uh, this metric, how can I control and balance my traffic between each of these individual services to be able to deal with failures while keeping an overall uptime of you know, four nines, for example. So in the Kubernetes sense, if I just have a bunch of services uh, being redeployed, like Kubernetes noticed some of these nodes are failing, and it's trying to um, balance them, schedule them to healthier nodes, I still have requests coming in that need to be served and that people are expecting to complete. And that lag time in between it being scheduled to a healthier node could make the difference in what I'm telling my customers that uh, is the, the the desired service level of availability. So I want to be able to quickly tell that something is under load and automatically rebalance the traffic without someone having to manually go in there. And you can do this with setting limits of uh, given uh, a certain amount of bad requests coming in through my given proxy. I wanna redirect to healthier nodes. And because everything communicates with these proxies and all of the proxies generally know about the overall metrics that need to be sustained for availability, I can balance the traffic to healthier nodes a lot quicker than just waiting for them to be rescheduled and then handling them. So one bad request won't continue to go to a bad node, it'll automatically be redirected because all the envoys know this given host is just under a lot of load right now.
0: I think this is a very instructive point in in the sense of, so Kubernetes doesn't do that already. <laughs> like, like it in in so much as it knows the overall health of the stuff running in it, I guess Kubernetes doesn't manage the connections between the different things in it in so much as like, let, let, let's use your example, right? Here's, here's a, uh, Here's, here's a service that gives you reviews of a book, and here's a service that gives you the description of the book, you know, the author, year published, how many pages or whatever. And then there's a whole other service that's basically like viewing the book, right? Like whatever the UI is. And so Kubernetes on its own wouldn't be able to figure out that when I go to the, the book description site, it's all screwed up. So I need to stop doing that. Or, or I need to go to another book description site and instead you need your uh, your envoy in the sidecar which is a large part of istio to figure that out and make sure that the the, the that the coordination between viewing what a book is and going to the book description site isn't going to screw up your whole application is, is that is that like in any way accurate
1: yeah I mean kubernetes knows uh, is able to work with health checks in that the the node kublet, uh, which is the kind of worker sort of node level piece, will hit your application on a set schedule at a certain endpoint and be able to tell, okay, um, I'm expecting a 200 when I hit this uh, rest endpoint. If I don't get that back, then I'll try again a couple of times. And if not, okay, I'll go ahead and say, this is unhealthy, I'll mark it as unhealthy. And then I'll try to either schedule it to a different node or just basically, you know, do the equivalent of restarting it. Um, But along the way, um, that might not be good enough for your given service just to say, I've tried this, you know, three, four times. It's still not working. I have to handle what happens if it's not working. Uh, Immediately, I want to be able to tell quickly, okay, I've People are, basically other envoys are saying that this node is uh, unhealthy. I don't even want to bother trying to go to that node to see if it's right. healthy again. Uh, I know that the metrics are are there to uh, balance to other healthier nodes. So immediately just don't care about that one until it's reporting healthy again. Uh, I don't want to wait for that to be rescheduled to be able to handle my load. Just go ahead and redirect to uh, healthier nodes. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. So And, and to make a totally ridiculous Example out of it. So going back to your book thing, let's say you've got your book description service, and we'll just again, it's ridiculous. Let's say your book description service is just like a bunch of searchable JSON files. Like it's just straight up providing like dumb JSON files. And you, you, with the service, you give it, I mean, whatever you give it an ISBN number, whatever the unique identifier is, the GUID of the book, and all it does is it gives you back that JSON file, and then you do whatnot, right? And so from your book viewing thing, I guess you would have your Envoy in there and it would figure out that like, oh, I'm calling the book description service and it's giving me nothing or it's hanging. And I don't give a fuck what's wrong with it. I have another book description service and I'm just gonna immediately switch over to using that. That's like that, the fact that that's down is Kubernetes' problem, I don't care. And so you immediately switch over to your other book service And that way you can get your four nines of book selling or whatever. And then that that kind of intelligence, I guess, within your application is not something that Kubernetes would do. What Kubernetes would do is go to the individual book service and it would be like, hey, are you doing all right? You need anything? And then the broken book description service would be like, I'm dead. And then so Kubernetes basically shoots it in the head and reboots <laughs> it in the hope that it'll uh, fix itself.
1: Yeah, and then all the requests that have gone there so far just kind of left hanging, you know, the unless you're sufficiently building in a lot of retry logic. Um, those select set of customers, some of them are going to, by the luck of the draw, have healthy nodes and some are not. You want to have the general case be, everyone's going to get the healthy things.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's really helpful. That makes that makes sense. And then I guess this is another notion that I bump up against a lot is, I don't know if this is in the, uh, the community anymore, but it's sort of like we're pushing down all of that routing stuff close to the actual client. Whereas we kind of wanted, to, we used to sort of centralize it or put it on the server side. But now we want the actual client code to kind of manage it, the stuff itself. We, we want like to go even further back than Java. We want to have like a stupid network and all of the intelligence is at the actual edges uh, that, that we have.
1: Indeed. Yeah. And then kind of like that sense in the beginning where you had like opinionated platforms for operators and then you move to like being able to swap in and, and tune things to uh, your heart's desire Applications differences among applications are, are vast, and the idea of just load balancing by uh, using the traditional round-robbing fashion, which is kind of uh, a default within inside of Kubernetes, where I just say, okay, I send a request over here, you're next in line, I send a request over there, that round-robin sort of thing, is not going to fly with all applications because load can be described very differently depending on the application so for example if i could have an application that always responds within a certain amount of time and it's similar to like that crud sort of application here's your request i want that review give me that review okay here's your request give me that review okay and that is something that's pretty easy to to think about in that round robin sort of fashion Hmm. but maybe your type of load for your application is different like if you have uh, some requests that'll take longer than others, um, for example, if you needed both the ratings and then you needed to drill in on a certain feature of that book and you, you wanted to filter very uh, filter to exactly what you wanted for, for that given book, there's multiple calls with inside of that thing or multiple sources that need to be compiled together. So simply distributing that request in that round-robin fashion to all your nodes might tend to overload some of the sort of nodes. Because uh, as a user, if you expose the ability to filter and the ability just to return the default, and some people are doing the defaults and some people are doing the loads, you might end up, uh, if you're round-robinning around, with several servers handling all of the requests for those large um, load-based calls and others just getting the easy ones. Mm. and that sort of load could not also be easily figured out by kubernetes it just is calling out and you're responding with the 200s um, but under the covers you know everything's on fire for you because uh you keep getting new requests for things uh with expensive operations and this allows you to customize some of that load
0: now now you now you're potentially blowing my mind here cuz like what I w- what we were talking about was like the client talking to a service and making sure that the client is cool. But I think what you're alluding to is like the service can also use this TO stuff to make sure that it doesn't blow up. Like it could be aware of all the other services that are running or at least the ones like itself and make sure that it's distributing requests properly so that they don't all get, uh, I mean, I know this is a uh, incorrect statement, but you don't want to round robin all to the same node so to speak. Like you want to make sure that you're distributing that workload appropriately on the uh, service side. And there's probably a lot of care and feeding that goes into uh, that side as well. I mean, I guess if you're pushing all the intelligence out to the edges, the actual service that contains your, uh, all your JSON files is an edge itself. And so there needs to be a tremendous amount of intelligence on on that side to uh, figure things out as well.
1: I mean you could have like an appliance on the outside that's trying to feed this and then generally suit it back but as soon as the generally those load balancers they're going to send that to one piece of your service and uh, being able to gather all of the information about what this specific request is going to do is not something easily done at that like edge load balancer thing because just because it landed on a certain server that technically wasn't under stress it, it probably will spider out to different services internal to your database or in, internal to your data center and then finally come back out through that load bouncer to your client. And the load bouncer would have no idea what it did under the covers because it's just expecting you to eventually return and say, here's all that work that I did. Mm. So because you have that uh, sidecar inside of your data center, you're able to bounce that load at a more fine grain level.
0: Yeah, now that's interesting. So. Uh I've I've chewed up all of our time with this remedial stuff. But like what just just to list it off quickly, like what, what are the other things that Istio provides? Like it's I imagine it's a lot more than just this routing stuff we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, so similar to uh the you know rate limiting or protections for the calling server, um different servers or, or you as an application owner also maybe have profiled your application to note uh, I know that I am able to handle this percentage of requests per second. And instead of like going around the office and telling everybody, make sure that you hard code into your libraries that um, service B is only able to handle this amount of requests, so don't send me that amount of traffic. You can have a circuit breaker type of thing inside of your application that you just expose and say, if uh, I get a, a number of requests that are outside of the boundaries that I know that I can have, Uh, send back to the calling service 503s saying, you know, I I can't handle this right now and try to retry and allow me to deal with the the protections that I know that I can safely do and then accept other things. And then uh, on the client side, you can also do sorts of retries. Uh, I noticed a lot of these things are happening. So automatically, go ahead and back off for a bit, and then send the request. Uh, Now, kind of outside of the routing thing, uh, another big thing that Istio is providing is uh, security sorts of features. Um, And the big one that I like to always talk about is the, the mutual TLS authentication between services. It's like a really... Big feature, a really good selling point, but it's like IPv6. You know, it's priority number one next year. We're going to get to it. It's very important, but I just don't have the time for it. Uh, what you get immediately with Istio is a strong identity assigned to each of these given services that you don't have to deal with manually. You don't have to create your own certificates and tell each of your other application owners, hey, when you communicate with my service, make sure you use this certificate pair Uh, that I generated and then the next month maybe you generated certificates again tell tell them okay start using these certificates Istio provides uh, a way for all of that to be managed certificates to be rotated on I believe the defaults like an hourly basis which Mm. is like really great and it allows you to uh, explicitly say things like because I I know user uh, Y is uh, of this privilege level or something, um, I'm gonna grant him ac- uh, access to this given endpoint of this other service. And user uh, C may not have those correct permissions, so I'm gonna automatically block them. So these certificates are or distributed out to each of your applications automatically just by opting in to this. And you get that sort of secure communication between services that you would need to <laughs> In some cases, manually do yourself these times. Each of them has an identity that everyone can reason about. You don't have to hard code anything. You're getting that secure communi- uh, TLS communication and, and everything is just hunky-dory.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes total sense. And and as you're alluding to, the uh novelty of it is really interesting. Like the idea of uh uh it's it's it, I mean it's basically access control. And what follows from access control is like if you trust that the right things had access to the right things, <laughs> then, then you can, you know, you can also do permissioning and, and start to like do auditing and compliance and things like that. But, and, and then also equally importantly is like, if you're, if you're rotating what the identities are every hour or or less, then you also have that adds a huge degree of certainty in that things are secure because you don't, uh, it removes sloppiness from the system. So, you build a whole lot more trust into the right thing happened and the right thing is happening in the overall system, security-wise and access-wise.
1: Indeed, yeah, and I mean, there's there's definitely people that are familiar with secure development practices that you can you can call up as a and have them act as a consultant and come and they'll help you do all these things for you. Um, but they're 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 pretty rare. They're pretty expensive and. And you want to take those lessons like again, like in Kubernetes and build them into your platform. So an individual developer does not need to worry about these things, it's just handled through this sort of platform. Mm.
0: And and then I imagine there there's like is like Istio has like service discovery and directory stuff, right? To help you look up services. Or am I just projecting that?
1: Indeed. No, for sure. Yeah. So the Istio was originally uh, targeting like the Kubernetes environment just because um, Google and IBM were already big uh, players in, in Kubernetes uh, the Kubernetes market. So it originally targeted using the same sort of service discovery that Kubernetes did. But because this is a useful um, thing for any developer on any sort of platform, we want to be able to make that service discovery thing pluggable. So currently outside of... Just using the normal Kubernetes service discovery, you can plug in uh, HashiCorp's console, uh, Netflix's Eureka. And there's also, uh, more recently within the last few months, um, we, or we've been working with the Cloud Foundry folks to get um, Cloud Foundry's. I think it's Bosch DNS sort of service discovery built in as another plug-in point.
0: So it's basically like a, uh, uh, let's normalize what what direct service directories look like and then therefore how you look up a service like to to your to use your example like uh, I'm a book viewing application I need to find the book description service and then you would go to your uh, your whatever part of istio and say like hey man give me the book description service and it would essentially give you a connection to that that, that you could do something with
1: an interesting use case for kind of all of this you know we, we can list all these features out but like um... You know, maybe a big use case that you can immediately think about is um, I am on VMs, I want to move to Cloud Foundry or I want to move to Mesos, so I want to move to Kubernetes. Um, I could start to maybe adopt Istio prior to kind of changing my entire deployment method because if I use Istio with inside of my VM-based deployments, which we're working on making just you being able to deploy Istio only to a VM environment. Um, but if I'm moving between orchestrators, maybe I want to try all of them out. All of that service level communication that I'm used to, the really difficult stuff to change within an application, to adopt a different service, discover anything, um, doesn't need to be changed because I'm still going to continue to speak the same Istio sort of isms on kubernetes that i would on uh, vms or on cloud foundry that i would on uh mesos all of those difficult pieces are are done i just need to worry about like okay now i've got these new things that i'm going to deploy and whatnot so this is like a huge um step forward to be able to like i think they call it like re-platform it in a less um kind of like uh wall sort of blocking sort of way you you can worry about some of those
0: uh, things you can
1: communicated across both in a common way
0: yeah i mean i mean as 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 my last comment on it and then, and then we can wrap up like i think uh you know, you know, all the way back to that, uh, that Michael Feathers book dealing with legacy code, which I'm sure he's the kind of person that would come back and tell me why I'm totally wrong and uh, be very pedantic about it, which is fine. There's no problem. But like, it's basically, as far as I could tell, a book about how to write unit tests for legacy code so that you can then modernize it, right? Like, it's sort of like, like, as you'll recall, refactoring is wonderful. And there's a part that people often overlook, which is you need to have comprehensive tests to make sure you don't break things with your refactoring, so the issue with modernizing legacy code is you don't have tests, and you have to touch the code in order to make tests. So now you're fucked, right? And so how do you get around that? And <laughs> and he he has this concept of uh, that I think I've seen transmuted to other stuff, but like first you want to start by finding the seams in your code, like the weird edges you may not know about, and start there. And so similarly, like if you're modernizing an application, maybe there's this other approach of like uh, there are components and parts of your code and there's kind of lines or seams around them. And so if you metaphorically sort of use Istio to talk just between those things, no matter what the infrastructure is, as you start to move those individual components to your different type of infrastructure, like your Kubernetes or whatever, things will work out better. Because a large part of what you have, the issue you have with modernizing legacy applications is the way that your different parts of the system talk with each other is troublesome. And so if you normalize that, it's a little easier to move things over and strangle is the wrong word, but you're sort of like you're faceting out and potentially strangling things, which could be something. I don't know. I feel like app modernization is like so many things in life where you can generalize about it and make rules, but it's pretty much a unique experience every time, which is why it's terrible. But at least there's some good strategies uh, <laughs> start to play out.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, uh like technology isn't like buying a microwave. Like you can't just buy the microwave with green uh buttons and whatnot and expect that you can customize it to your heart's desire. Like uh I- most people in technology want to be able to have plug points. So if your plug point is service discovery, um, that's what Istio is hoping to have to generalize on that. Different logging daemons, there's pluggability in that. In Kubernetes, you see this as well, being able to support different runtimes and your custom schedulers. It's all about trying to drive try the most adoption through easing that on ramp forward.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's so. This is this is a good overview. There's probably a lot more on Istio that we could talk about. But you're also making me think. I think there's there's maybe a, a, a parabolic not parabolic there's a parable in the differences between an oven and a microwave that we could reflect on the technology where like you get an oven and it basically at most it does four things like the main it goes to a specific temperature and makes sure that it schedules so that that temperature remains the same inside the oven you can also set a timer that either turns off the oven or does not turn off the oven when it's done. And it usually has a clock on it so you can use it to tell the time. And then it has an oven light and it basically like does those four things. And then you go over to a microwave and you're like, what the fuck do all these buttons do? Like I've got power levels. I can defrost things. I like, I got all these different options in a microwave. And at the end of the day, all you really, I don't know about pit people, but all I ever really do is I use the minute button and which will only go up to automatically setting it for like five minutes So then if I need to set it for five minutes, I got to do a more complicated routine of saying the total time. But it's like I use the 30 second and the minute button at whatever the default power level is. And I have no idea what the rest of those buttons are. And yet, if you were to like, give me a microwave that had, and you see this, those industrial ones that only have a dial. Like whenever I have a microwave that you can only set the time on it. Like I feel like I shouldn't have that microwave. Like I need more functionality. It's like, Anyways, between those two things is like, and then if you threw in like a stovetop, which only has one function, like you turn on a burner from one to 10, if it's electric, or you kind of eyeball the the height of the flame, like the the different knobs, literally the different knobs and buttons you have on those different devices seem like an apt metaphor for all this tech shit and like what people actually need. So. There's a little weird jag for you, but anyhow, thanks for being on here. Like, if people if people want to uh, fo- follow up with your stuff or look up more of this, like, what would you point them towards? Uh,
1: definitely for for Kubernetes, uh, just the Kubernetes.io. Uh, I'm CM Luciano, C M L U C I A N O, on the Kubernetes Slack. CM Luciano on the, the Cloud Foundry Slack. I'm on there. I'm on. Uh, Probably three other slacks. Normally, you could find me with that handle, especially GitHub, github.com slash cmluciano. Uh, istio.io for getting started guides. There's some good getting started guides on there as well as getting uh, more fine-grained about some of the features that we talked about, like how do I customize that load balancer policy and whatnot. And I do go by cmluciano underscore on Twitter if you really want to communicate with me on there. If you hit CM Luciano without the underscore you're gonna get someone that uh, is a lot more f- successful than I am he runs some sort of junk uh, removal company in Canada that is not me you want the CM Luciano underscore
0: on Twitter just just think you could combine your uh, your enterprises together and you could have a startup that basically goes into clouds and does garbage collection that, that you, you those two things would be great I'm sure there's, oh, yes, there's yes. a lot of money in that but only available in Canada, unfortunately. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not very global, but, you know, it's got its own set of markets. It's, it, it's comfortable. Exactly.
0: So. It's plenty of charm. Well, uh, well, again, thanks for being on. And as always, this has been Software Defined Interviews. If you want to uh, go look up the show notes, you can go to softwaredefinedinterviews.com. And there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of other episodes there. There's only about, uh, at this point, maybe four or five of the new format of interviews that we have. But if you remember the uh, members only white paper episodes that Brand and I used to do, we have all of those in there now and some weird little uh, interviews and discussions that I used to do uh, as well. That's, that's why this is like episode 60, whatever it is. Cause I, I, uh, speaking of legacy modernization, I ported a bunch of old stuff into there, but just go over to softwaredefinedinterviews.com and you can find the Slack channel we have, newsletters and buying a t-shirt. And if you look in the show notes, there's a 25% discount on the t-shirt because apparently people didn't want to pay the full amount, which is fine, but uh, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.